Thank you for listening to this message from Forward Ministries. We pray it blesses you, encourages you, and inspires grace in you today. You can visit us online at forwardministries.org. We're going to answer the easy little question today, why did God create mankind? You ever wondered that? What are we doing here? Why are we here? God, why did you make me? So started setting it up last week, but this week I just want to give you from God's perspective why you are here. Depending on what your church background is, depending on what your theology is or what it's becoming or what it's turned away from, we have all different ideas of who we think God is, what he's doing in relationship with us and why he put us here in the first place. Have you, let me ask you a question, have you ever been taught that God made you for one specific reason to do that thing while you were here on this planet. Have you ever been taught that? God made you for one thing, and it's to do this. Well, I want to give you a little bit of freedom, let you off the hook a little bit, and, and just give you from his perspective why he created mankind. But the rest of this series, we'll look into the difference between your purpose, the difference between your dreams and your calling, and how all of that fits together, sticking to the Great Commission as you walk out your call, knowing your purpose. Sound good? See, we have to have in our minds thoughts about God that are consistent with who He has revealed Himself to be. Does that make sense? Like, you don't have the legal right to have in your mind thoughts about God that He's not revealed Himself to be. If you want to know who He is, You look in the Word, and when he says, I am Jehovah so-and-so, you can take it to the bank that that is who God is. I am Jehovah Rapha. I am your healer. I am your provider. I am your righteousness. I am the one with you. All of those things, that's one of my favorite studies to do, and I do it a couple times a year. I just go through and read all the names of who God has said I am, he is, (laughs) and just meditate on that. This is who God is. This is, this is the character of God. I, don't, I can't have in my thoughts anything that's contrary to who he says he is. But, you know, the Christians aren't very good at that. We have in our mind, and unbelievers too, have in our mind who we think God is. You know, I think it's a, <clears throat> I don't know if he made the, if the, the band made the quote up or not, but I think it's the Aqualung record from Jethro Tull on the back of it. It says, God made man in his own image and man returned the favor. In other words, we've made God to be, this is who I think you are. And what we do is we look at Africa. We look at the Middle East. We look in, you know, atrocity acts. And we say, okay, God, somehow we have to define you in context of these difficulties. We look at people who have gone through horrific things even in this church. And some people, for some reason, need for those things to make sense in light of who God is as if he's involved in them. So then you get these cute little sayings like, well, God's in control. You ever said that? You ever taught that? You can own it. I I tell you what, if God's in control of this earth, he's doing a bad job. You know, there is a way of interpreting the Bible 
called uh, Reformed Theology. It's John Calvin. It's, uh, I forget the guy's name in the first service, too, the one that nailed the theses on the door. That Martin, Martin Luther. Luther, yeah, the beer guy. Martin Luther had a stipend in his contract when he was a minister at a church that he had to have certain many, so many gallons of beer as his payment. A little side note, but anyway. Yeah, he's like, you got to pay me this much and bring me this much beer, and then I'll preach for you. Go figure. <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't laugh at that. <laughs> anyway, so developed this idea called Reformed Theology. It really kind of turned into that. It was a great, it was great because it empowered regular people to be able to get into the Word of God and have a relationship with God based on the Word, you know. Before then, it was pretty much the, the clergy had access to Bibles and it was read in a different language and you as the commoner didn't have access to a Bible. And so it reformed all of that. It put the Bible in the hands of the everyday person. Praise God for that. You don't need a preacher. you got the Holy Spirit. There are some people that don't even have the Word of God, but if you do, man, let God teach you through that thing. Read your Bible. Amen? So... But the Reformed theology, and I'm not trying to tear it down. There's a lot of things in there I like. You know, I don't, I don't really hold to any one particular Armenian or Calvinist or any of that kind of stuff. For me, it's like, let's just read the Bible. And let's, I don't, I, I, for me, I try to interpret God more through who he says he is more so than some of the doctrinal things. You know, for me, it's more of a characterization of who God is, an understanding of, of his personality than some of the doctrinal things that we try to quantify. Does that make sense? I'll talk to you. I'm going to bring out a little bit more of that when, when God describes how he sees our relationship. But the Reformed theology, the Calvinistic mindset, kind of has rooted within it the idea that everything's already ordained, everything's already planned, that God kind of has a script in heaven that everything is following, and it's all happening according to plan. But there's space for the individual's free will. In other words, he's planned everything out, but you still have a choice within his plan. It's like, okay, well, which is it? Did he plan everything out already, or do you have a free will? And those are questions that people have debated for thousands of years, and I'm not trying to solve all that. I'm just trying to bring it all into a place where we can talk about it today based on why you think you're breathing air today. That's what we want to know, right? Because you have the question, what am I supposed to do? What's my purpose? What do you want me to do, God? Have you ever asked that question? Maybe yesterday, maybe 10 times a day. <laughs> Before you answer that question, you have to be absolutely rock solid in your purpose. You have to know why God created you. The very definition of the word purpose is the intention of the creator. The intention of the maker is the purpose for the thing that's made. So you don't have the right to determine your own purpose. Now, wrapped up in purpose is value and worth. An object does not decide how much it's worth. If I make this chair, that chair can't decide how much it's worth. I do. I set the price. I set the value on what I made. And then everybody else relates to it based on what I say it's worth, right? They can agree if it's worth that or not. God has determined 
your worth because he created you. And why did he create you? First off, you're worth the blood of Jesus. You're worth God becoming a human and dying for you to gain you back into his family. But why? I want to give you kind of a general idea based on a few scriptures. We're going to start in Revelation 4 <clears throat> about why. Why did God create us? And it's, it's pretty broad. You already know my answer, but I want to give you the scriptures on, on, on his perspective. We're going to look at his words toward mankind and understand our relationship based on how he describes it. You know, have you ever done that? You married couples or you, got a re you have a really close friend maybe, and you hear them describe your relationship. It's interesting when you hear somebody else describe your relationship. That's what we're going to do. We're going to hear God describe your relationship with him. First off, before we get to Revelation, just in, in Jeremiah 1, 5, God says that he knew us before he was in our, we were in our mother's womb. You know, you're not an accident. There are no accidents. I mean, you know, there might be an oops, but when God unites that spirit, I don't know how it all works, but the scripture says he knew you before you were in your mother's womb. You know what I'm saying? So whether he's assigning what spirit goes where, I don't know, but he knew you before you were born. And he knows you from the perspective of a father from the perspective of a parent. He doesn't know you from the perspective of a slave master that's hiring workers. In fact, Jesus said, now that the kingdom is here, now that salvation has come in me, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. You're friends of God. Servants don't know what the master knows, but I've revealed everything to you that God has revealed to me. You are my friends. Jesus calls us that. So in Revelation 4, 11, there's huge insight into why God created anything and everything. And it's just, it's very simple. It's really, really very simple, but it's profound for you to have these thoughts in your mind about your relationship with God. You're worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you have created all things, and for your pleasure they were created. So why did he create everything? All right, for his pleasure. Now, I've got a question for you. You can, you can pull that down. Thank you. If he created everything for his pleasure, now how you answer this question and how the world answers this question is you might think, eh, doesn't really mean much, but it's important because it, it, it reveals to you who you think God is. But if he created everything for his pleasure... Then I have a question for you. What brings God pleasure? Think about it. What do you think brings God pleasure? We know, you know, relationship, fellowship. It's like any father loves watching his kids grow and learn and make good decisions and all that kind of stuff, you know. Enjoy what you've created for them. On the flip side, do you think sickness brings God pleasure? It's not in heaven. If it's not in heaven, it doesn't bring him pleasure. I mean, do you think lack brings him pleasure? What about confusion? Do you think confusion brings God pleasure? Because a lot of Christians are confused. 
and they think God's confusing them. God, I don't know why this happened. Why did this happen? What are you doing in my life? Why, this thing is here in my life. What are you doing? Right? Have you ever asked that? You look at a situation in your life, and then you say, what are you doing? As if he put it there. And I understand you're looking at the situation and might be thinking, okay, what are we going to do about this, God? But to look at the situation and then try to understand God based on your circumstance, it's like the least effective way to actually understand the character of God. Judging circumstances, judging God by circumstances, is the least accurate way to determine the will of God. They're physical. They change. They change like this. They change second to second, moment to moment. Don't look at your circumstances and try and figure out who God is. Amen? I mean, that's good news. There's freedom in that. So what brings God pleasure? That's a big question. Let's look at Isaiah 54 in verse 5. If you would flip over to the NIV on that translation, it reads a little more accurate. So <clears throat> remember, we're going to listen to God describe our relationship. Wouldn't it be cool if you hear God talking about you and describing your relationship? What would it sound like? For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. Stay right there on five. The Lord, your maker, is your husband. This is God talking first person to Isaiah. This is direct prophecy. This is not somebody else describing God. This is God speaking, and he calls us. He's referring to Israel, or as we now know under the new covenant, those people who have received Christ by faith. The children of Abraham are those who have faith in Jesus and receive that eternal promise. Those are the true Israelites, so to speak, the family of God. You understand what I'm saying? So he's talking about in the future, the family of God. This is how he describes them. The Lord your maker is your husband. That's pretty intimate. That's how God, it doesn't say the Lord your God is your slave master. The Lord your God is your boss. The Lord your God is your scientist experimenting upon you. Oh, your husband, verse 6. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit, a wife who married young only to be rejected. The Lord will draw you back. He calls you back. This is how he sees you. Someone who got into something that's in way over your head. Something happened to you, you were too young, and God's drawing you out of that. I mean, that's, that's the kind of relationship that God sees us in. Let's keep going here. Let's flip over to Psalm 8. Psalm 8, I've got the New American Standard that we're going to read out of. Like, I'll give you for instance, the scripture that um, Brenda read in Isaiah 54 that says, I have created the waster that wreaks havoc. Some translations say, I have created the destroyer to destroy. And that's, that's an improper translation. It's actually the definite article, that destroys or which destroys. 
And depending on the interpreter, they would change different definite articles to transition the rest of the sentence. God's not saying, I made the devil to wreck things. What he's saying is it's an affirmation. He's saying, look, I made the devil. You know that one that wrecks stuff? I made him. He's under my feet. Now, in my authority, you condemn every tongue that rises up against you. Specifically, the enemy in that passage, he's saying, look, I made him. I know what he does. That guy that runs around and wreaks havoc. You condemn what he does in your life. Do you see that? So I like to jump back and forth between different translations. Some people are King James only. Bless God, let's read the King James. It's the most accurate. <laughs> well, you know what? Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. If you want to get really accurate and pick bones, you better learn how to read Greek. It's hard. So anyway, that's why I like to read different translations because you can, you can go back to the original language and see how different words are interpreted. And, and you're not just picking and choosing based on what you want it to say, but certain ones read more clearly in, in relation to who God really is. So Psalm 8, there's only nine verses in there. And, you know, if you've got some extra time this week, it might be a really good idea to just read through Psalm 8, maybe a different translation each day and just meditate in it. So Psalm 8 is fascinating. It's David. It, it even says here, from the direct, for the director of music, according to Giddeth, a Psalm of David. You know what, you want to know what Giddeth means? That, nobody knows. <laughs> Seriously, you read commentaries and there's all these different ideas on what they think it means. Some think it means that it's referring to the region of Gath, which is where Goliath was out of. And so these would have been the thoughts and the ideas in his heart in relation to having the experience of killing Goliath or going into the battle with Goliath. Some say that Giddeth refers to like a particular expanse of space or just the idea of sitting out under the stars and, and looking up. I lean more toward that direction. There's a couple of ideas what they think it means. But where he goes with it is really interesting because you got to picture David is sitting out under the stars, right? And he's looking up and he just sees everything. You know, he might have in his mind the thoughts of what's going on, on you know, in the neighboring countries and what's going on in the world. I mean, we all do that. We all get heavy thoughts on our hearts and our minds because we look <laughs> at the world and we think, oh, man, what is going on? Why? What is happening? Why are we here, you know? And he's kind of going through that. But it's interesting because it flips, and it's like he prophesies the answer back to himself. So he starts with the question, but then he answers himself. You know, that's just like a believer. It's like you, you, a believer that knows how to hear God. You start, and by the, end, by the end of your complaining session, you're telling yourself what the truth really is. You ever do that? It's like you just start out to complain. So I just really want to complain right now. But God, God knows better, and you know better. Anyway, verse 1, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies. See, we're worried about strongholds coming against us. God has set you as a stronghold against him. I got one while. 
<laughs> he says, to, the, to silence the foe and the avenger. What he's saying here in verse 2 is that even in the mouth of babies, there is enough power to silence the enemy. There is enough power to silence any accuser that comes against you. It's the nature of the capacity that, that God created humankind in. And then he goes on here, verse 3. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? Verse 5. This is the answer. What is man? You've made him. You've made them a little lower than the angels. Now, again, this is an improper translation because in the original Hebrew, that word angels is actually the word Elohim, which is the word God. All the way back to the beginning, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Same word. You are not created lower than angels. That don't mean you need to start blowing your trumpet and telling them what to do. That just means you are closer to God than anything can be. You, you, are, you are children of God. These guys, angels, are servants of mankind. God crafted mankind, decided the kind of relationship that we would have with him, and that is we are created just a little bit lower than God in fellowship with him. It says you've crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, Again, this is dominion. He's put this planet under our charge, under our care. Verse 8. And the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Go back to verse 5. Where's Adam? I know he's hearing that song. I don't know many old songs, but I know that one. All right, verse 5. This is incredible. You made them a little lower than yourself. You've made them a little lower than Elohim and crowned them with glory and honor. So much can be taken out of this one passage because it answers the question, why did you make God? Why did you make mankind? What is man worth to you? How do you see mankind? What are we here for? Why am I here? Why all of this stuff? What's going on, God? How do you see us? And he prophesies the answer back to himself. He's crowned him with glory and honor, set him over the works of his hands. This word glory and honor, in our language, we would use the words dignity and worth. He's crowned us with dignity and worth. In other words, the value that God has placed upon us is is full of dignity and worth and majesty or royalty. God decided that we would be kings and priests on this earth. That's how God sees us. If you were to put God's eyes in your head and look at yourself and see yourself through his eyes, what he sees is a glorious, majestic, dignified, valuable, human being standing on this planet 
with rule and reign over all of his creation. God's not looking at us and judging us based on our external efforts and our works. God's looking at what he made you to be. Now, you have to receive Christ so that you, are, you have his spirit and you get a new heart and you are indwelt by him so you are spiritually, eternally righteous. But every human has this as the nature of their creation. We exchange that and we take on a sin nature. But you are still, even unbelievers, this is how God sees them. You are, you're, kings and, you're kings on this planet. You're rulers. I've created you with incredible worth and value. I couldn't stand to be without you, so I died for you. I gave my own life as a ransom to have you back in my family. So the next time you start evaluating yourself, you better remember this. You understand what I'm saying? Know who you are in God's eyes. Know your purpose. The reason God created you is to be a king. And you are. And you know what? We're walking in that authority now. I mean, you are influencing your world with your words and your expectations, and you are exercising your dominion on this planet. That's why the world looks like it does, because mankind has influence. What would it look like if you only spoke to yourself in light of this? What would it look like if you spoke to your children as if they were kings and priests full of value and worth? You know, you don't just walk into the king's court and start bad-mouthing his kids. You might lose your head. Now, you know, God's not, you don't understand what I'm saying. The, the, the value is like, no, you can't talk. You cannot talk to my child this way. But we do that to ourselves. So, you know, the carnal preacher wants to jump in and say, well, you know what? You got sin in your life, and so you've lost favor with God, and you need to get holy and get yourself cleaned up. Then you can get back into right favor with God. You got to get right with God. You know what? Man, Jesus did provide that, and that is true. You need to be made righteous spiritually. But man, if we could just see ourselves in light of the value that God has for us and each other. You know, I love what Brenda shared. She's praying for forgiveness. She's praying that where it started out, she wanted to use the court system to seek revenge. Now she's praying for this person. Man, that's, that's kingdom right there. That's, that's being in agreement with the value that God has on that person. God leaves the 99 and goes after the one. So when you start trying to answer the question, God, what am I supposed to do? Remember who you are first. Then seek to answer that question. So as you're setting your goals and you're setting your intention and you're moving forward in life and you're looking at, this is what I want to do, this is what I want to accomplish, I also want to live out what God wants me to do on this planet, I pray those two merge together, but if they don't, I asked the question last week, what if fulfilling your call means you've got to work a nine-to-five job? Are you okay with that? Or do you have the American dream mindset of what your call looks like, that people are just supposed to pay you for what you love to do? Well, some of you won't get paid for what you love to do. Are you okay with that? Can you still fulfill your call while you're doing that? 
So as we move forward over these next couple of weeks, on January 13th, which is a Wednesday, we're starting a course in here. I don't have all the answers, but we're going to collectively gather and, and move forward together and encourage each other in this. Because I want you to be confident in what your call is. Now, it's a little more general than what you might think, but there are some specifics that you and God get together on and move forward in as well. So <clears throat> as you're setting your goals, and how many of you like to do, you like to write goals? Did I already ask that or was that first service? Do you like to write goals at the beginning of the year? Mm-hmm. Two of you. Maybe we'll do a different class. I don't know. <laughs> no, we all do. We all have desires and goals and dreams for our life. I want to make more money. I want to be more healthy. I want my relationships to be more loving. I want this and I want this. Those are all healthy things because those are all things that God created you to experience. I mean, God created a planet for two people that was full of gold and precious stones and air. I mean, oxygen. It's like if you can't breathe and you put an oxygen tank or a pile of gold in front of you, which one are you going to choose? It's free. It's everywhere. Gravity keeps you on the planet. That's more valuable than gold. Otherwise, you're gone. So as you're deciding your goals and you're taking time this week, next week, you want to make them specific. I'm going to go through some specifics and details of, you know, ideas to stick to as we're moving forward, as you're deciding Basically, you want to ask yourself questions like, okay, a year from now, what do I want to have seen changed in my life? But don't let those goals and the path to the fulfillment of those goals invalidate the finished work of the cross, right? Don't let those goals invalidate who and what you already are based on how God sees you and based on what he's already spiritually done within you. Does that make sense? So you're not going to flip into dead works, because some grace people are like, oh, I don't need, God's just going to do everything for me. I don't have to do anything. Yeah, how's that working out for you? <laughs> yes, he does everything. Absolutely, you can't do anything without him that's spiritual. But you get your heart engaged. And just one of the paths, one of the little tools you can do is goal setting and setting your intention. And, and, and how do you know whether you've reached that goal or not if you hadn't written it down, you know, if you don't know where you're going? You want to be able to look back and measure your journey, not to see if you're holy enough or if you've made it, but to, you know, keep going. It's like Paul said, I press on toward the mark of the prize of the high calling in Christ, you know. There's a goal. Ultimately, you're there. You're holy. You're perfect. There's nothing that you can add to your salvation. You can't make God like you better. You're not going to fulfill something, and then God says, oh, I'm really proud of you now. No. You're his child. You don't go up and down in his eyes. You're loved. You're accepted. Now, live from that. Amen? So that's what this next few weeks is going to look like. I have some steps that I have written out, and and I think it will help you determine your call, so to speak. But, uh, you know, be free. Realize God created everything for his good pleasure, for you to enjoy it. You know, that's, one, that's on my list. 
enjoy the planet more. <laughs> Honestly, get outside, hike, whatever. You know, enjoy the planet. Enjoy what God made for us. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for the freedom that we have within you. <clears throat> we thank you that you did create us full of dignity, full of worth. We are incredibly valued to you and valuable to you. We are worth every drop of the blood of Jesus to you. You consider us a precious gift from Jesus. And you've placed us on this planet as kings to rule and reign in your righteousness to bring you glory. And that's what we want. We're committed to living in such a way where we're influenced by you, rooted in your truth, bringing you glory. And we want other people to know this gospel. We want other people to know your character. We want to live in such a way that it's a sign and a testimony to the world that following you is the way of life.